I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. I'm joined today by Randall Fleischer. Since 1992, Maestro Fleischer has served as the musical director and conductor of the Hudson Valley Philharmonic and has conducted orchestras for presidents and popes, as well as audiences around the world. Randy is just off a smash six-week engagement of the Broadway production of Rocktobia, a mashup of rock music and symphony, which he co-created and co-produced with Rob Evans, formerly of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Additionally, he's a composer, arranger, educator, and author. On October 13th, Randy will begin the 59th season of the Hudson Valley Philharmonic with a night of opera and ballet. Randy, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavan. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I'm so glad to, to be with you here at the Same Bardavan here. Theater, Poughkeepsie. Exactly. It's beautiful theater. We're so lucky to have this place. Yeah, you've been uh, you've been around here for a while, it's haven't you? 26 seasons. Since 1992. That's right. Exactly. And let's talk a little bit about your background. You're uh-huh. really a Midwestern boy, Born in yes? Canton, Ohio, home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Hell yes. Okay. Whoa. I guess, well, it is football season, so what, you what's your go. team? Uh, you know what? I haven't watched football in years, but I played in junior high. Did you really? Uh, yeah. No, you know, these days I'm so, I can't sit for two hours and watch a sporting event. Because about 10 minutes into it, I start to think, well, you know, I really haven't looked at the Shostakovich enough, or, you know, I've got that deadline, and I just, that's guilt. it for me. Guilt. You got music guilt? Guilt, that music oh, guilt. My goodness. Conductor's work is never done. <laughs> so you were born in Canton, yeah. and you went to school at Oberlin. Oberlin. Mm-hmm. And your master's? Indiana University. And when you were at Indiana, did you, were you conducting at that time? What uh-huh. were you doing out there? It was a master's degree in, in both choral conducting and orchestral conducting. Uh, and I had a teaching assistantship, so I stayed there a while. I was there four years, mm. uh, and I almost completed both degrees. I completed the choral degree, and I was 90% through the orchestral degree. What's the difference between a choral degree and an orchestral it, degree? It's it's just the, the mechanics of the ensembles. I mean, the actual waving of your hands is exactly the same, but understanding, and it's completely different, almost completely different repertoire. The choral repertoire dates back to the, you know, uh, 10th century, uh, and there are all those wonderful Renaissance motets and all that kind of stuff. So you, you learn a whole other group of composers that wrote incredible choral music before Bach, mm. you know. Uh, um, and then the mechanics of singing, voice was actually my principal instrument, uh, piano was second. Uh, but I really knew all along I wanted to be a symphony conductor, mm-hmm. and I wanted to conduct opera and things like that. So I, I auditioned for the uh, orchestral conducting program uh, my second year, was accepted, and but still kept my teaching assistantship in the choral department. Uh, and then I worked at the Opera House at IU, which was great. Mm-hmm. I was the chorus master there, which is kind of an old school. That's the way conductors used to be trained back in the 19th century, mm-hmm. before the whole notion of an assistant conductor essentially an apprenticeship was born. Conductors would work as the, the Kapellmeister, the choral director, or, or a rehearsal accompanist or something like that in an opera house and learn the craft of conducting essentially backstage. Uh, uh, so I kind of had the uh, best of both worlds. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And then you, what was your inspiration to become a conductor to begin with? Well, it was really Bernstein. 
like I like knew you were say like that. so many of of us, of us. I'm almost sixty. Uh, uh, any conductor, I would say, uh, my age or older, who's born in the United States of America, for all of us, Bernstein was our hero. And I grew up watching those young people's concerts. And my mom had the worst crush possible on Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> and she was just could barely form a sentence when she actually met him. Uh, uh, and I had the honor of studying with him uh, at Tanglewood, summer of 1989. But it was, it was Bernstein. And then when I went to Oberlin, you know, as a sophomore, I already was transitioning out of wanting to be a singer. And I just fell in love with music theory and analysis and the whole mechanics of what makes music tick. And it was really pretty clear. My first semester sophomore year, I took a conducting class for no other reason but that it was a degree requirement. And just fell in love with that whole, the whole essence of, of music. Why, how does a composer make us feel something? How do those little dots and lines add up to humanity and emotion? I was fascinated, still am. Uh, and at that point, it was clear I wanted to be a, a conductor. And you've conducted many, many orchestras. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, my research has shown that right now you are the conductor and the music director for right. Hudson Valley Philharmonic uh -huh. here in Poughkeepsie, Anchorage. Anchorage, Alaska, so, Alaska. And Youngstown, Ohio. And how long have you been, do you, is it, Generally, that a conductor juggles three yeah. or four positions. Like if they're that? lucky, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I feel lucky to have one. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I'm I, my cup runneth over, if you will. I mm. feel so utterly blessed to have three ongoing wonderful music director positions that I love. This is my twentieth season in Anchorage, Alaska. Mm. This is I forget either my eighth or ninth season in Youngstown. Eight or nine years would be a longish tenure for many of my uh, colleagues, and 26 years here. I'm married for 36 years. You know, <laughs> I, I'm a long-term guy. When I get a good thing, I just stay with it. Uh, and I just feel so honored to have these three communities where I absolutely feel like I live there, even though I live in Los Angeles. I feel like a friend. I feel like a neighbor in those communities, and it's, it's a great life. And that's important to us. And the people sure. that attend the, the, the Philharmonic here in the Hudson Valley, we consider you our a local, own. Absolutely. absolutely, and I am absolutely. I have so many friends here in the Hudson Valley. You know, Chris Silva, Steve Lamarca; those guys are like brothers to me. They're like family. Mm -hmm. The musicians in the orchestra, many of whom I've known the whole way, uh, uh, and then others in the community. I mean, my friends over at the Poughkeepsie Grand Hotel. <laughs> hey, Randy, welcome back. That's one of my homes away from home. Uh, uh, it's, it's a really good life to build a sense of stability uh, in a field that can often feel so unbelievably unstable. In the Philharmonic, how many musicians do you have um, in the orchestra You know right what, now? I don't know the exact number of tenured musicians. I think it's 68 or 70. It's a full symphony. And you said that you've, you've been with some of them yeah. for 26 well, years. Well, many of them were in the orchestra already when That's I came incredible. on 26 years ago. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, Carol Cowan, our, our wonderful concertmaster, Sue mm -hmm. Seligman, principal cello, uh, Marsha Gates, principal flute, uh, Joel, our, our, our acting principal oboe. Um, you know, these guys were in the band when I came on. And it's wonderful that we've enjoyed for all these years such a wonderful musical relationship. That's really incredible. Yep, yep. It really is. Um, now, I see that you've also conducted, I would say, for popes and presidents. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> yes, correct? Yes, I have, yes. <laughs> Particularly President Bush. Yes, senior. Senior. And you uh -huh. want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, that was an enormous honor. Uh, uh, that was the year that my old boss, Mr. Slav Rostropovich, the great cellist and conductor, 
uh, about whom I could go on for hours in terms of the unbelievable life that he led, not just as the greatest cellist ever and one of the great conductors of his time, but as an anti-communist political dissident. Uh, uh, I mean, both Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn owe their lives to him. I don't think that's a, even a slight exaggeration. They would both admit to that. The courage that he displayed, and his wife, Galina Vizhnevskaya, the famous opera star, uh, they've both passed away, uh, um, was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And for a Russian-born guy like that to win the Kennedy Center Award uh, 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 and receive that honor with, with the president presiding, uh, uh, and Yo-Yo Ma played and hosted the tribute to Rostropovich, and I conducted the tribute to Slava, as we called him. And uh, that was an unspeakable honor. Slava was one of my dearest, closest friends in the world. He was both boss, mentor, and second father to me. Mm. I, I loved him like family, and it was a great honor to conduct that tribute. And you also toured with him in Japan. And was it also uh, in all Russia? Over. Well, the first tour was Japan and Russia. Uh, that was back in 1990. That was his now historic return after mm -hmm. 18 years of exile. He was essentially booted out of Russia uh, because he wrote a scathing anti-communist criticism, sent it to Pravda. Uh, at, at that time, he had won every conceivable recognition that the mm -hmm. Soviet Union has, can give to an artist or any citizen you know, what would be the equivalent of Congressional Medals of Honor, every artistic, you know, uh, 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 conceivable award. Um, and he was an em enormous star. He was the Leonard Bernstein of, mm -hmm. of Russia as a cellist and conductor, and his wife was the reigning opera mm -hmm. diva. And when they, they did these things to protect Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov, uh, uh, they were stripped of everything and basically put on house arrest. Uh, uh, he, all his concerts were canceled, all Galena's concerts were canceled, all their awards were removed, and on and on. And, and then President Jimmy Carter and, and Senator Ted Kennedy heard about this and lobbied aggressively to get the Rostropoviches and their two daughters uh, uh, political asylum here in the United States. They were able to do that, and Slava and Galena basically packed two suitcases and left like That's so incredible. many refugees in the history of the world, you know, were in a terrible situation. I mean, my ancestry, I'm Jewish, mm -hmm. they all did the same thing. Mm -hmm. The smart ones who got out. Right. Uh, um, and then ironically, not long thereafter, he becomes music director of the symphony in Washington, D.C., the National Symphony, it's called. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, uh, so, so he had been in exile for 18 years, and then in, in 1990, returned to Russia, played the Dvorak Cello Concerto, which is kind of the signature piece for the instrument. I had the honor of conducting mm -hmm. that performance, which was a harrowing experience for me. <laughs> he also conducted Shostakovich and, and was still pretty darn scathing and very outspoken uh, about, the, they called it the big lie, all the communist propaganda uh, and Stalin and, and the purges and, you know, he was right out there with it. And, and then established, you know, uh, reestablished his life in Russia and, and, and lived a sort of, you know, a, a double life, if you will. Uh, but that was an amazing trip in conducting the Dvorak with Slava at that moment. I mean, the entire world of classical music stopped dead in its tracks and focused on Slava's visit back to Russia. 
uh, uh, Mike Wallace did a 60 minute spot on it. There was a 90 minute PBS special called mm -hmm. Soldier of Music uh, about him and Galena, he and Galena and their return. It was quite a moment. Well, it sounds like you also were instrumental in allowing him to bridge that gap. I mean, you were there. I, I would not say I was instrumental. I, he, he, I had the honor of conducting for no other reason because he asked me to. Mm. Uh, uh, How but, did you meet him? Uh, I met him at the day he hired me. Really? Yeah. Uh, I was part of then what was called the Affiliate Artist Conductor Program, which was subsidized by Exxon and other big corporations. The whole idea was that uh, uh, at that point, and frankly to this day, most of the major podiums, most of the major music director positions in America are occupied by Europeans. Mm. That's still true. New York, Boston, Chicago, mm. uh, uh, Philly, that's actually he's Canadian, uh, um, Los Angeles, on and on and on. Uh, conductors who, who are born in this country are kind of still discriminated against mm -hmm. in, in some of the big cities. So they formed this program to train the next generation of conductors and subsidize the assistant conductor positions. Basically, they would say, if you'll pick a conductor from our roster, we'll pay his salary or part of his, his or her salary. So I got into that program, got an audition for the National Symphony, uh, uh, and he hired me. And the day I met Rostropovich was the day we were knocking back a shot of Stoli, and he said, congratulations, kid, you got the job, only with a much thicker Russian accent right. than that. What a thrill for you. Oh, my God, thrill isn't even the word. I mean, it, it, was, it was both thrilling and traumatic. It's like, oh, my God, now this is real. Right. Now I'm a real conductor. Right. A at a very high level, I was the Kennedy Center, and Rostropovich was my boss, and he told me shortly thereafter that I was going to conduct the Dvorak. I'm like... I had never conducted uh, a romantic concerto with any major soloist ever. The first time I ever did it was this, was Rostropovich's return. I was so nervous. It was unbelievable. I did fine, but it was a harrowing moment. It sounds like one of the highlights of your life. No question. No question. What about your trip to the Vatican? That was a great honor. Uh, I taught at Catholic University while I was in Washington, D.C. It was kind of my second job. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was wonderful. I really enjoyed kind of the best of both worlds, if you will, for a conductor, because I had this academic position. Mm -hmm. I was teaching, conducting. I was, you know, kind of, it was kind of my first music director position, mm -hmm. making decisions about what was the orchestra going to play, how to build their technique, how to build their repertoire, things like that. Uh, and every four years, Catholic University goes on a big trip to the Vatican. It wasn't anything about me particularly. Mm -hmm. It's just what they do. Uh, and the board of directors of the college goes along. It's a big fundraising opportunity for the university. There is a lot of money because all those people who get to go on this trip get to meet the pope. And, and we played a private uh, concert for him in his private concert hall in the Vatican, which is one of the most stunning. It's a thing that mo most human beings never get to see. Because mm. unless you're one of those people that's going to perform for the pope, you don't get in there. It's not on the tour, the Vatican. <laughs> and I remember these green marble pillars and all this artwork on the side uh, walls. It was unbelievable. And it was Pope John Paul, I was who, gonna... was a, who was a great pope. This was back in, gosh, I think it was 93 or 94. I forget. I think it was spring of 93. Uh, uh, and it was a great honor. We played a concert in, in uh, uh, Rome. My wife Heidi came along. We had a fabulous romantic vacation, <laughs> paid vacation in Rome. And there he was. And he gave me a little medal and, and blessed me. And I'm a nice Jewish boy, but still. <laughs> that, that, it was it a thrill, hurt. right? was a thrill. It can't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've also conducted um, 
operas, correct? Yes, yes. And did that, was it, were you able to blend your, your, um, uh, your conducting of music with the conducting of choral, the, the experience I, I, you had? It, it certainly helped being a singer, because I can pronounce Italian, mm-hmm. and I speak a little German, and most of the operas are Italian uh, or, or German. There's some in French. I can do, pronounce that as well. So, so absolutely, my training as a singer is invaluable. So, because I kind of understand the mechanics of that, mm-hmm. I know that singers have to breathe, uh, and I'm very sympathetic. Uh, uh, when I was the or- opera course master at Indiana University, in a couple of the shows uh, where where the course was having trouble, I would throw on a costume and march on stage <laughs> with them. Uh, and did that a bunch of times. Uh, so I really understand how hard it is to sing opera. Let me see Josh Bell or Yo-Yo or any of these great soloists who I love and adore put on a costume, wear a 30-pound wig, and act like there's somebody else convincingly. And, I mean, you don't really play the cello in different languages, but you know, you're singing in a language which is not your first language. Right. I mean, the challenges of, of being a competent opera singer, let alone a brilliant one, are enormous, mm. and I get that, and I love that repertoire, and uh, so it's a thrill for me to conduct opera, and that's what this weekend's uh, Hudson Valley Philharmonic concert exactly. is all about. Opera and a wonderful ballet suite from Swan Lake, uh, but this is concert version of opera, but still the challenges are largely the same. But uh, you did the Magic Flute, though, didn't yes. you? What was the New York, New York City, City Opera, opera? exactly. And back that was quite, in the a, day, quite a challenge. It was. Well, you know, back in that day, which was, I think it was 95, 96 season, I forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, maybe it was 96, 97. It all starts to blur. Uh, um, that's when City Opera was still huge mm-hmm. and mighty, and they were the second biggest uh, opera company uh, in America, second mm-hmm. only to the Met in terms of the size of their budget. And City Opera was a, was a really special place, really, really special place back then. It was the place for young American singers to launch their career. And I mean, these singers were crazy. I mean, they'd sing a major role in, in Magic Flute Wednesday night, a major role in Boheme Friday night, and another different major role on Sunday afternoon. And the chorus was the same chorus for every show. So they would do that course, I mean, and they were nuts. They were very high strung, but for, for, for obvious reason. You know, how do you put on a costume and sing an opera Wednesday night, then a different costume and a whole other opera from memory, completely with full staging and everything. Different Thursday language. Night. Yeah, and Wednesday night's opera's in Italian, Thursday night's opera's in German, Friday night's in English, and Sunday afternoon's in French. <laughs> And and there were there you were got, co- you have to want to sing opera pretty bad. Yes, there were a couple of days where I had two performances in on the same day. One opera, you know, uh, Mikado in the afternoon and Magic Flute that night, uh, and the orchestra is the same. So it was crazy and it was fantastic. These young hungry singers and they were paid five hundred bucks a week. I mean, it was ludicrous. And my pay, I won't even discuss that, was about a seventh of what I'd now get for one concert. Uh, uh, it was crazy and it was wonderful. And I kind of burned out fast <laughs> from that. I wonder why. Uh, yeah, and, and it, you know, it could eat up your life. I mean, city opera tenure was either two seasons or 20. Because mm. it's one of those things where you either fell in love with it and wanted to make your life out of it, or you did it for a year or two to hopefully get a nice review or two from the New York Times, find an agent who would, who, you know, because the, all the opera agents went to City Opera on a regular basis to scout new talent. I mean, Sam Raimi, that's where he launched his career. You know, singer after singer, 
uh, uh, Beverly Sills launched her career at City mm -hmm. Opera, saying there, and then later, having had a fabulous career at the Met, went back to City Opera. She was the artistic director uh, uh, a couple seasons before I came in the door. Christopher Keene was the guy who hired me and was the music director when I was there. It was great. Uh, uh, I'm so glad I did it, and I was very glad when I left. <laughs> it's like, whew, God, wow. Well, that's, that's kind of an interesting segue into Rocktopia. Yes. Because you're back in New York. Yes, I am. You're on Broadway. We were, yes. You are. You were for six weeks uh -huh. this spring. Yep. And you were doing how many shows a week? In nine shows a week, some weeks, eight or nine. And tell me a little bit about that. Well, what Rocktopia, an exciting project, first of all. It was an extremely exciting project uh, uh, that I conceived with Rob Evan, mm -hmm. uh, Rob's dear friend. He sang with Trans-Siberian Orchestra for years. He also did some huge roles on Broadway. Uh, he was the original, uh, one of the original Jekylls and Jekyll and Hyde. He sang Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. Had a big sort of Tarzan, rock pop. Tarzan, too. I think he was Tarzan. Tarzan, exactly. A big sort of rock pop Broadway career. Sang with TSO, has a degree in music. And Rob and I met on a Pops program in San Diego. And uh, I, it was just a thing where he and I just kind of became friends. And we were just like, like Chris Silva and I, we were like just salt of the earth guys who happen to be artists. And, and, I, and I could sense he was a rock and roll guy. And, and, and I invited him to breakfast to say, you know what, I, let me just run an idea past you. And, and I called it Rock Fusion back then. I had this idea of fusing, like for instance, Stravinsky, Rite of Spring with Purple Haze, Jimi Hendrix, and on and on and on. I remember Rob's response. He's like, man, I've, I've got tingles up my spine right now. You're my guy. Because he, he had this opera fusion thing called Rock Tenor, which was just an idea at that point. And he said, would you be my musical supervisor for Rock Tenor? I said, I, I can't do that. I'm too busy as a conductor. But let's merge our ideas, Rock Fusion and Rock Tenor, and we did. First show was called Rock Fusion, was done in Youngstown, Ohio. Then the second show, we, Rob came up with the idea of naming it Rocktopia, where he brought several of his artists. He brought this incredible guitarist, Alex Skolnick. He brought this uh, incredible soprano, Morgan James, who can also sing rock and roll. And then we, we gave Rocktopia its premier sort of maiden voyage, if you will, in Youngstown, Ohio and invited a producer from New York to come work on it with us. His name is Bill Franzblau. That was back in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of kept trying and trying and trying to give Rocktopia, and the guys from, uh, um, they're the biggest rock touring agency in America. Not Live Nation. Live Nation. Uh, came to the show, and they're like, you know, we, we kind of like parts of this, we think this is a good idea, blah, 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 blah. And then it was four years before Rob and Bill succeeded in finding the funding for a PBS special. And that's Rocktopia Live from Budapest. And I'm like, oh my God, it's alive, it's, it's real. And we shot Rocktopia Live in Budapest, live in Budapest, and then it was broadcast on PBS the following, it was December of 2012. And then we launched our first tour that year. And the tour was a moderate success. No, what's Rocktopia? Nobody knew what Rocktopia was. Not long thereafter, Rob and Bill secured funding for a Broadway run. And then Rocktopia, live on Broadway, was born, and they started attracting rock stars. Pat Monahan from, uh, uh, from Train. Train. Uh, Pat did three weeks of the show. He was amazing. Great artist, great performer. We did Drops of Jupiter. His dressing room was right next to mine. We had struck up a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Pat was instrumental in getting things going. 
Uh, Dee Snyder joined the cast for a week. Dee is joining us on tour uh, of this month. Uh, um, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, uh, did a week of Rocktopia on Broadway. And boom, we're alive and we're real. And, and those uh, weeks on Broadway were unbelievably stressful and unbelievably exciting. Uh, and and it's, it's a real, it's just been a great thing for me. Very stressful. It's a whole other world. I mean, I'm perfectly thrilled to come back to my music director <laughs> positions and, and the world that I know. But it's wonderful to have one little pinky toe in uh, pop culture. Now, tell us a little bit about the music. I mean, we, we know we've talked about Rocktopia. It, tell me about some a, of the music and mashups that you've worked Rocktopia, on. Rocktopia, you just nailed it. Rocktopia's big mashup show. The opening sequence starts with the opening to uh, uh, Richard Strauss's tone poem, Also Sprach Zarathustra, which we all know is the theme to the opening of 2001. Uh, that sort of, you know, goes right into uh, 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 Baba O'Reilly from The Who. I build that up into a contrapuntal frenzy and boom, we just kind of drop ourselves right into Mozart, Eine kleine Nachmusik. Bam, 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 And that goes into Come Sail Away with little echoes of all those melodies then thrown in as, as counterpoint in the same way that Berlioz or, or Beethoven might have brought their themes back in a symphony or for that matter, Puccini in his operas. The themes are constantly interweaving with each other. Uh, Rocktopia is really constructed like a symphony or an opera, the construction of the piece is entirely classical in the way that you meet and greet the themes and then what drives classical music is the conflict of themes and the resulting drama. It's the same in opera. That is what classical music is all about. The stereotype, the inaccurate stereotype is, oh, it's so pretty. Well, yeah, a lot of it is, but that's not what classical music is. Classical music is the dramatic conflict of of melodies, of themes. And that's the way I wrote uh, Rocktopia, with a lot of input uh, from Rob Evan, my co-creator. I would just kind of send him stuff. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And much of the time, response was, great, <laughs> done. <laughs> and sometimes he would say, oh, you know, that section feels a little long, or that transition felt awkward. And that was the creative give and take between Rob and I. And you had to get permission from Pete Townsend oh, yeah. and the bands. Well, yeah. Well, well, how, did they, how did they react well, when you asked Well, I mean, uh, uh, Pete Townsend was thrilled. Uh, uh, Robert Plant is thrilled. In fact, there's, there's rumor that he might join the show at some point and do some Rocktopia shows. Wow. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Wow. Uh, uh, um, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, we had to get, and you know, in some cases we didn't get the permission. Uh, uh, the Hendrix estate, you know, Jimmy's not alive to make this call for himself. By and large, when we were able to get to the artists themselves and play what I've done with their song, mm. they were thrilled. Because at the end of the day, the statement you know, it's, it's the Who and Richard Strauss and Mozart. And they're like, oh my God, what, you know what I'm saying? You're shining that, you mean you, mean you think my little rock and roll <laughs> song belongs in that category? So, so and, and, and the treatments I think are the sort of thing, I mean, this is a little uh, egomaniacal of me, but it's the sort of thing that any musician would enjoy and appreciate. If they have, and like, you know, Freddie Mercury, you know, uh, Brian May loves what we did with, with the Queen material. So when, when, we were able, when we were able to get through the gatekeepers to the actual artists themselves, we're pretty unanimous in their yes to Rocktopia. Now with Rocktopia, you have an orchestra. Right. A 20-piece orchestra, a full it orchestra? It varies v widely. Uh, in Budapest for the shoot, we had an 80-piece orchestra. 
the Broadway show, I think, was an 18-piece orchestra. And I think we're touring with a, like a 16- or 18-piece orchestra. Then you got a, a choral. We have a choir, yes. And how, and how many people are in the choir? That also varies widely. On Broadway, we had about 30. Uh, uh, it's been as little as maybe a dozen kind of like an extended rock pop backup group. But I mean, you know, much of the stuff is a very operatic and it's very opera chorus stuff and they have to sing in German and they have to sing in Italian. And so really, we, you know, everybody on the stage has to be both. And then also you have some stars, like you said, you had Pat Monahan, right. the Trans-Siberian Orchestra? No. No, they did not appear on Broadway? No, 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 no. In fact, they're a little uncomfortable with us. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not at all, you know, uh, we we're not even supposed to say that okay. <laughs> ever. Uh, so you said that, not yes. me. That was a question, uh, not yeah, a statement. Exactly. No, like Mairead Nesbitt, uh, who's the violinist from Celtic Woman, mm -hmm. is now the violinist in the Rocktopia band. Uh, uh, Henry Aronson, one of the most distinguished uh, Broadway musical directors in New York City and a very sought-after studio musician, he was the musical director of Rock of Ages and all kinds of other big Broadway shows. He's our keyboard player and served as musical director for a while. Tony Bruno was the electric guitarist in the a band, and we just hired a new drummer and a new bass player. Uh, so I don't remember their names offhand. Uh, but but it's a it's a very very good, a New York City studio rock band, and some of the best vocalists you're ever going to hear. I mean, Tony Vincent starred in American Idiot on Broadway and toured as you know singing Freddie's songs with uh, Queen. Toured with Brian May and the you know all the living members of Queen. Uh, Tony is an amazing, uh, and he's scored some uh, 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 charting hits as a songwriter himself. Amazing vocalist. Chloe Lowry uh, has toured with TSO and other major things. So we've had some, we have just an incredible accumulation of artists. If our listeners have missed the uh, Broadway run, where could they? You can just, you just Google you. Rocktopia. Uh, and, and our website will come up. You can watch big chunks of uh, the show online. Uh, uh, and there's, there's touring performances in the New York City area this month. Uh, there's one on Long Island. There's one in Englewood, New Jersey. Uh, there's one Saturday night. I mean, come to the Bardavon Saturday night. Right. Uh, but if you want to see Rocktopia live, there's there's a couple opportunities in the New York metro area this month. What about Poughkeepsie? Is Poughkeepsie on that list? Uh, not yet, although we played Bethel Woods two summers ago uh, to a phenomenal response. The Bethel Woods guys want us back, and we want to come back. That's a wonderful venue. I don't blame And the you. history there. Oh, my God. <laughs> So we've talked about you being a conductor. We've right. talked about you being a creator and a producer of Broadway. Uh -huh. You're also an arranger uh -huh. of classical music, and you're an educator. Yes. Tell me a little bit about those projects you've had, I believe, with your wife, Heidi. With Heidi Joyce. Uh, Heidi is, uh, 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 has a degree in music, Phi Beta Kappa, from Indiana University. That's where we met. Uh, she's a fine singer, fine pianist, actually. Uh, and she has perfect pitch, and I don't which is somewhat of a contentious issue in our now almost 36-year marriage. Uh, um, but uh, she was a musical theater performer at first. And then when I moved to D.C., uh, she went into stand-up comedy. Uh, the the, the stand-up comedy scene That's tough. in That's Washington, D.C., especially for a pretty girl, right. <laughs> uh, um, at that time was amazing. Wanda Sykes, Dave Chappelle... Patton Oswald. Mm. These are all the comics you would see at an open mic show on a Thursday night at Garvin's Comedy Club in DC. So the environment there to sort of cut your teeth and learn how to write jokes and to be able to sit down with Dave and say, what do you think of this? Or you know what I'm saying? Mm. Which, you know, or Wanda or any of these guys. Uh, uh, and Heidi went on to do very well as a stand-up comic, came out with two CDs, toured nationally, 
bunch of TV appearances. She moved to LA, which is now our home. To, she did small roles on you know, sitcoms and things like that. Never became world famous, but you know, made a good living as a stand-up comic. And then retired when our daughter, Michaela, was born. Anyways, together, we've created a thing that we call Cool Concerts for Kids. We might think of a better name for it, but that's been 20 some years we've been doing that. And we use rap, we use hip hop, we use world music. Uh, Heidi's also uh, a certified ORF instructor. She studied, I don't know if you know the whole Carl Orff, no. this whole method of teaching music with, with world percussion, uh, uh, with dance, with folk music, and with classical music. So we've used all these solid, many years proven uh, principles of music education uh, body percussion, uh, the kids sing along with the orchestra, they, they do body percussion during the shows, it's active listening, raise your hand when you hear this, do this when you hear that, sing along when you hear that. The kids, instead of just sitting there, I mean, you know, the Bernstein Young People's Concerts are still the flagship, you know, in the genre, but if I could say anything, dare I say anything critical, the kids still just kind of sat there for an hour and listened to him, and they were magnificent what he did. Uh, uh, but ours are active. Uh, uh, We've done them all over the country. And, and now, uh, you know, with the whole situation with the testing thing, fewer and fewer and fewer schools are letting their kids out for field trips. That's a shame, isn't it's it? It's terrible. And what about the way they've cut back on music programs particularly? Don't even get me started. Because the, t the statistics are overwhelming that, that a kid who takes up an instrument or sings in choir uh, uh, from the fourth grade up through the end of high school has better test scores, fewer better attendance, fewer uh, 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 issues in terms of their behavior and discipline, and they're far more likely, by you know, exponentially more likely to go on to college, mm -hmm. especially in poor neighborhoods, mm -hmm. be that a poor rural neighborhood or an inner, inner city. You give that kid a clarinet or a violin in the fourth grade, mm -hmm. and and stay on them uh, in terms of a, you know in school music program. They're they're far more likely to succeed in life. But, you know, uh, uh, you, when the public schools became a political football, it's been a deterioration ever since. Uh, um, because we're not listening to the teachers anymore, the politics or politicians are just shouting at each other. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, but our, we now take our concerts into the schools. We take a, a, maybe a 20 or 25 piece uh, chamber orchestra, uh, with my other two orchestras in Youngstown and Anchorage, this is changing. Uh, uh, we still do some young people's concerts here at the Bardavon and at uh, 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 the theater in, in uh, Anchorage, but all of our young people's concerts in Youngstown now have moved out of our concert hall and directly into the schools. Mm. Uh, and it's, I mean, I just, it's a great day for me to be in the school gymnasium somewhere in a small town in Ohio uh, seeing some kid hear a live orchestra for the first time mm. and light up. It's amazing. Do you have any young people's concerts scheduled here? At the we Bartolome? do, although I don't conduct them. Mm -hmm. We have another conductor and another team that does them here. And I also, there's also a string uh, We have a string competition, competition which yeah. is a fabulous thing. It's an, it has international reach. We, we get contestants from literally all over the world, but particularly from the major conservatories uh, on the East Coast mm -hmm. and Cleveland and you know, those, those that are drivable. Mm -hmm. uh, and we present the winner or winners uh, every year in a concerto uh, here with the, the symphony, with the, young, uh, with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. Uh, they get a little piece of money and they play on a chamber music series in Italy now. Uh, so it's really growing and growing and this is not nothing. 
I mean, when I travel out as a guest conductor, a lot of people say, hey, you know, does Hudson Valley Philharmonic have that string competition still? I'm like, oh yeah, we do. Uh, and, and, and people who come to the competition really buy into the drama of mm -hmm. it. Uh, the families that, that house these contestants that come here practically adopt the kid for you know, a couple of days. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that's usually in the spring, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Every spring. I think it's in March every year. And it's at the Bardavon and also up at UPAC? Uh, no. No, it's, it's only... At Vass it, the competition is at Vassar. At Vassar, at yeah. Skinner Hall. At Skinner Hall, and the winners play here. Oh, the winners play here. Yeah. And is it uh, free for people to attend? It is. Really? I, you know, I think it's free. I'll have to double check that. I think the whole thing is free. That's incredible. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the season. What do you have coming up for us here this, at the Hudson Valley Philharmonic? This weekend, we have, uh, as I mentioned, a fantastic tribute to opera. We've worked with these apprentice uh, kids at the Met before. I mean, you know, it's the Met. This is the apprentice program to get into. If you want to sing opera uh, and you're 24 years old, uh, about to launch your career, this is the program to get into. So these kids are fabulous. And... You know, it's Nessun Dorma, which everybody has heard the three tenors sing, and Un Bel D, which everybody's heard this great soprano or that great soprano sing from Madame Butterfly. You know, it's that thing that... Everybody's heard that. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, you're going to be like, oh, that, that's what that is. All that, that's what that is. It's no more Rice Krispies. Remember the Rice Krispies? Right, you know, right exactly. That's yes. called Vesti La Juba uh, from Pagliacci. So it's one of those things where, and recognition is such a powerful, powerful tool. Uh, um, it's it's going to be absolutely incredible. We also have uh, uh, gotten very good at incorporating some visual components. Uh, we've got a wonderful tribute to the Hudson River coming up in the spring. And the next concert in November has a clarinetist by the name of Kenan Azmat. Uh, he's a Syrian-born clarinetist, and he's a musician in Silk Road Project, which was, is Yo-Yo Yo -Yo Ma's, Ma's project. big project. Yes. Silk Road is an amazing thing that Yo-Yo has done. Yo-Yo and I are acquaintances. I love him, like everybody does. Uh, and Silk Road Project uh, may be the coolest thing in all of music. He, I mean, the Silk Road was, was a link between Europe and China, but he expands the concept to include basically great virtuosic musicians from around the world. A couple of classical people, uh, uh, musicians from all over Europe, all over Asia, all over Africa, all over South America, and they basically sit in a room and jam. And, and they each write things for each other. So these are virtuosi, composers as well. And, and the resulting gumbo is, is one of the most amazing musical experiences that exists, and they tour. And they don't just tour in the typical concert hall style. They'll play on a street corner. They'll play here, they'll play there. And I highly recommend to anybody, watch the HBO special about Silk Road. For me, I, I was in tears watching it. It makes me proud to be a musician, mm -hmm. that our language, our art form, can be a force for peace in the world, and has been. Kenan Osman is the Syrian clarinetist who snuck a box of recorders, a box of flutophones that you can buy at any toy store, into a Syrian refugee camp and taught music to the girls. Mm -hmm. He could have been killed for that. He's coming to play in this theater. That's incredible. With the Hudson Valley Philharmonic.
That's he's incredible. a Juilliard-trained clarinetist. Uh, uh, he's an amazing classical musician. His piece is brilliant. And that guy, watch the special, that guy is going to play right here in this hall. And that's also part of the um, big read, isn't it? It is. Which is yeah. incredible. We have a wonderful relationship with the library. Yeah. And we're talking about next year's projects, probably going to be the uh, Tales of Hemingway uh, concerto written by uh, 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 Michael Daugherty for Zool Bailey. Uh, we're holding dates for that. That's an amazing, amazing piece. He swept the Grammys in, in 2017. That's just a wonderful, I mean, it kind of says it all. I mean, why have a Hudson Valley Philharmonic? Why have a library? Why not just have garbage removal and that's it? You know? right. I mean, we're trying to say the Hudson Valley is, is a magical place to live. It's a great place to live. It's a beautiful place to live. It's a thoughtful place to live. It's a cultured place to live. Yeah, absolutely. Great rock and roll artists play this theater. Yeah, it was wonderful to see Aretha walk out on that stage. But it's also wonderful to hear Mozart and Shostakovich and works of living composers, Tan Dune and Daugherty and Chris Brubeck and Joan Tower and uh, Ellen Svillage and Jennifer Higdon and on and on and on. Uh, uh, this, is, this is a great place to live. It's a cultured place. It's a thoughtful place. It's a fun, wonderful place. And what do you have in store for the Hudson Valley program that you're going to have in May? Because I remember I attended Antarctica last year. Yeah. And that was incredible. The photographs and the music. I mean, that was just so heart, heartwarming to it see. It was. Well, Are it's, you planning it's to do the same type of thing with it the Hudson is, Valley? Exactly. Uh, it's going to be a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Spectacular pictures that, in a sense, tell the history of the river with incredible music underneath it. Uh, uh, that's one direction we've gone, and many other symphonies in the, in the country and in the world have gone. We're a very visual society, in, in a way more so way than in the 19, 18th and 19th centuries where much of the great repertoire was written. Uh, and, and our attention span is shorter. <laughs> you know, this average symphony concert in Beethoven's time would have lasted three and a half, four hours. Anything less, people would have felt cheated. Now, once we get close to the two-hour mark, people are like, mm, you know, I'm starting to look at my watch. So we're, it's a much shorter attention span. And the symphony, God bless us, as, a, as, a, as an institution, is still, in a sense, raising against the five-second soundbite on, online. Uh, uh, so our society's attention span has gotten shorter and shorter, and now it's crazy short. So still, if you want to experience that full psychological, intellectual, spiritual experience, the symphony is one of the last places you can go to get that, you know. Uh, but, but we're getting very, very visual. One or two concerts every year involves something uh, uh, spectacular, and that's what the tribute to the Hudson River is about. Well, Randy, this has been a wonderful conversation. My I've, pleasure. I hope you've had fun with us Absolutely. here backstage at the Bardavon, and I encourage everybody to come here. You and conduct the Hudson Valley Philharmonic, and also see Rocktopia on tour. Absolutely. Look out for Cool Kids. Is there anything else? Or subscribe to the Bardavon. Subscribe to the Bardavon. Uh, if you want to see this organization and this building thrive, buy tickets. Buy lots of tickets. Subscribe to the Bardavon. Subscribe to the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. Come here and be a presence here. Great. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks again to Maestro Randall Fleischer and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for hosting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon. <laughs>